I've got to tell you, look, the, the thing that drew me into gospel ministry 25 years ago to leave my job and leave my career and so on was to see Ephesians 1 achieved, to, to see all things brought under the name of Christ, to see every knee bow prior to the consummation, actually see people one now and, uh, and see the kingdom grow. And so I've, that's been my passion. I, I, if people talk about are you an evangelist and so on, I'm happy to say, I think I am. I, I have a, a heart and a passion for an evangelism and I think I have some gifts in that area um, without wanting to suggest, of course, that I'm, you know, the Billy Graham or whatever. But I'm, you know, Billy Graham said he wasn't a gifted evangelist. Did you, have you ever heard that line? He said he had the gift of the appeal. He wasn't the gifted evangelist. Isn't that interesting? Um, but no one really wants to admit, look, I do like evangelism. I enjoy evangelism. I've got a heart and passion for it. Um, and a very sense of the fragility of the last days, urgency. We need to reach more people. Um, but for 25 years I've been asking the question, uh, a couple actually, why aren't we seeing more people converted? I, I keep, why are our churches not growing? Why, and now in the last 15 years I've been asking every month really, why aren't we seeing our church, our church grow faster it's grown, but why aren't we seeing it grow faster? Why aren't we seeing... I think we had 150 people converted in the last six, eight, seven months or something like this, um, in the, in the la- 60 or so last year. So but that's not many. Why not 200, 300, 400? So I've been asking that question all the time. And the second question I keep asking then is, do we as leaders contribute to that? Are we as pastors and leaders part of the problem? And I, there's no doubt we are not the problem. There are spiritual issues. There's all kinds of other forces at work and so on. There's no doubt. But do we contribute? And the answer has got to be absolutely yes. We are key contributors to the problem of why the church is not growing, why we're not reaching more people. And I think actually until we own that, there is little hope apart from the miraculous intervention of God, God that will much will change. We are major contributors to the problem as leaders. Now, I know it's touchy because we pour our lives into the work and we're intimately entwined in our ministries as we ought to be. And when some bloke comes along suggesting that lack of growth you're frustrated by is partly your fault, you kind of want to go, well, you don't know what it's like in Canberra. Um, Isn't that right? Now, I know that feeling because I get Americans coming over and saying, oh, you've got that. And I go, well, you don't know what it's like in Australia, you know, and so I, I know that. Um, but um, the fact is, there are different circumstances. Yes, in all kinds of different places, and Canberra is different to the Central Coast, and there are circumstances in the Central Coast. All that kind of stuff I get. Um, but on the Central Coast, there are thoroughly reformed evangelical churches not growing, um, or they hadn't been. I think we're seeing some significant growth again now. Quite. Um, so th- there's no doubt we are a contributing factor. It is possible to make a bigger impact than we're doing and it means we have to take a good hard look at ourselves. <laughs> um, uh, there's a book by Jim Collins called Good to Great. Some of you guys have seen it. Yeah, It's actually a helpful book, uh, although it, it needs to be reviewed against the fact that he, I don't think he's done the thorough research. He's done the research on the, the businesses that have gone good to great, but he's not seen whether the principles he's identified were present in, ch- in, in businesses that didn't suddenly transition into great. So he's, 
he's identified principles that are there when the transition happens and suddenly they fire, but he's not then gone back and gone, are these principles always the key to making it happen or in some cases don't they even make the difference? Do you see that thing? But nonetheless, um, one, of the, one of the factors that he identifies is the uh, Stockdale principle, which is the ability to honestly and ruthlessly ask hard questions about where you're at and what's happening but do it in the context of optimism and confidence about the future. And he calls that the Stockdale Principle, where it's kind of the paradox of we're going to actually ask the hard questions, we're going to see what the real problems are, how bad it really is, but we're not going to be driven to despair by that. We're going to do it in the context of optimism and enthusiasm and confidence for the future. Um, Now, if Christians can't do that, (laughs) who can? You know, if we can't be the ones that honestly look at our ministries, what I'm doing, what we're doing, what's happening in our churches, and really owning the problems, and yet doing it in the confidence that we do it all under God and his glory, his grace, his sovereign power, he will build his church, and so have confidence that even with our problems we will win, who can? So I think the Stockdale Principle is very clearly our one, and, and I want to encourage us to keep doing that uh, and then um, and truly own the problems, identify where they might be, get others in to actually help you do that process if you need be. I think consultative uh, help is a good thing, to have a friend come from a neighbouring or from somewhere and sit with you and go, let's look at what's going on, what's happening with you. There's a number of uh, things that, in my mind, are stopping our churches growing. Now, there's a, there's a number of ways of running this. Let me give you the five ones and four ones. Four things we need, five things, problems. I think one of the problems we've got is a spiritual problem. There's a spiritual problem in our leadership and in the congregations. So the reason we don't have uh, an energy for mission and an effective activity for mission is because spiritually many of our leaders don't have an urgency for the gospel. We haven't got the gospel. We don't get the sense of heaven and hell, life and death. And so we're happy to drift. Our congregations very often don't get it. And so, of course, there's no heat and energy for them to mission because they don't actually think anyone's going to hell. Or if they do, it's just a notional theory. There's a spiritual problem. Now, how do you deal with that? Pray, preach, model, live, all that kind of stuff. Some of the stuff we've talked about. Um, There's a spiritual problem. There's um, leadership problems. We've got lots of people in leadership who aren't gifted as leaders. Now... Uh, what do you do with that? Some guys need to step aside. Other guys need to say, there's no one else to do this and I'm just going to keep doing it. And I'm going to skill up as best I can given who I am to do as best a job I can do. That's a bit where I'm at. (laughs) I kind of figure there's probably someone who could do this much better than I'm doing it. I can't see where they are. And this lifeboat needs to be skippered. All right, I'll do it because no one else is. Do you know, that's a bit where I'm at. So I'm going to skill up. I'm going to find out who I can go to and get all the, that kind of deal. Um, there's leadership gifting issues. There's um, management issues. I want to talk to you a bit about that in a moment. There's management issues. We, we just have simple problems with management. And it's along the lines of... The other thing that Covey identifies is that one of the keys for the good to great transition was discipline, thought, discipline, action. The, the, the discipline, thought to think into what actually the problems are Discipline thought to then think right through to what the solutions need to be and then the discipline action to work out what steps need to be taken and the discipline to keep on those steps and not be sidetracked. That's something we keep failing at. 
because the urgency keeps taking over. I'll come to that in a second. So there's, there's management issues, delegation, how do we... All that kind of stuff. Um, there's um, sociological issues. We haven't, we haven't skilled ourselves up on just the sociology of groups. Leading a group of 20 is different to leading a group of 200, is different, leading, different to a leading group of 2,000. And if you're not aware of the dynamics sociologically of a group of 50 and what will be hindering that group getting to 100, you won't know actually how to tackle the problems and transition the problems and fix the problems. It's just sociology of groups. So um, one of the things we worked out, and not, not on our own, we got help in thinking this through, but one of the things we, we realised was that if we were going to go from sort of the seven, 800 to over 1,000 kind of size, there are a couple of things we needed to deal with that you don't normally need to deal with when you're 200. We identified what they were and we disciplinedly, determinedly pursued them and fixed them at some cost, personally, to us, to us all. Um, but if we hadn't tackled that sociological issue and just kept saying, preach the gospel, live the gospel, you know, um, community, and just get, we would never have gotten any bigger. We wouldn't have reached more people. So there's a sociological... And the last thing, I think, is architecture. Um, I, I, I think we've... We underestimate the impact that architecture, building, building size, building dynamics, the nature of all that kind of stuff impacts our ability to grow. So identifying these five problems, you actually then immediately go, well, there's five things I can start to look into tackle to actually fix, you see, and start to skill up on a workout. I want to take you in another direction, though. Do you want to ask any questions about that, though, first? Oh, yeah, look, if you're 700, yeah, 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 we can talk about that. It, um, look, they are unique to the kind of 700 size. Um, I, actually, I will touch on a few more of them in a moment uh, because they do relate to all of us. But there's a, the na- one, one little one, one big one, is the nature of uh, your eldership structure, your leadership structure. If you continue to operate with a leadership structure that was in place when you were 100, 200, 300, you won't get past five, 600. Because... Typically what happens in a church of 100, the the leadership structure is a group of volunteers who meet monthly to manage the church. And the staff, if you have any staff, one or the two, whatever they are, are employed to kind of operate as chaplains and do the work of the ministries and so on. And these guys meet monthly. That becomes a massive constrictor to your ability to grow beyond 500, 600, 700, if you keep operating with that leadership management structure. It's just a simple fact. And so we shifted quite... We, we anticipated that. We began to work towards shifting towards a staff-led leadership structure where the vision and the mission, direction and running of church was all embedded into the staff meeting weekly who were full-time and the volunteer monthly leadership group were simply property finance policy. And we drove them away from micromanagement. And it freed us up to be able to... Um, there, there's one area. Now, most of our churches, you appoint someone to that monthly leadership structure, whether it's your eldership, your diaconate, your parish council, whatever it is. When you appoint someone to that, they typically think of themselves as an empowered leader. Finally, I'm now in the place where I can 
pull the reins of this church and make it work or not, you know, I can take leadership in this church in an empowered way. That's killing a church. It's killing a church. It, it, it will hold you back. Now, you might decide the cost of restructuring and rebuilding that is too great, so we'll just plant churches of 500. You can do that. I think it's a tragic waste of resource, um, and I can't bear to have that happen. I just find myself... I, I just can't let us choose a ceiling and let it be there. If there's some way to stop it being a ceiling, I'll make it stop being a ceiling. Yeah. I just, which thing? Oh, there's other reasons why you might be driven to that. Oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, yeah, look, we transit on the Central Coast. We, um, my initial vision 15 years ago was to plant uh, 50 churches on the Central Coast and, uh, you know, just swamp the place with churches. And after a couple of years, we worked out pretty quickly there weren't enough school halls to do that in. Um, and secondly, the resource required to set up a church of set up a church, and for it to eventually buy and build was so massive. There's efficiencies of scale that come from actually building bigger with what you've already got going. So there were some of those things that drove us to let's not go, let's not aim in the first instance to 50 lots of small churches. Let's go, let's go, keep building the centre bigger and bigger, and hiving off every five years a church plant. You see, and so we have deliberately pursued maximising the impact of this um, plant, if you like, this thing that God's given us, whilst sending off others as well. Yeah, that was a deliberate shift in decision. And so then we determined, we actually sat down a couple of years ago now and said, what are we going to be? Uh, and our staff eldership, so the, the Guys, the full-time pastoral staff eldership team, uh, the senior staff, we met over a period of months and decided, are we going to go for this or what? Are we really going to make a fist of this becoming, allowing it to be whatever God might grow up to be? Okay, yes, we are. Even if it costs us, yes. Even if it costs us personally, yes. Okay, let's work out exactly what are the blockages. We looked at the blockages and we found out that some of the shifts needed to be made in the senior staff and we, we've been doing all of that. Yeah, God's been growing. Yeah. All right. Uh, I'll keep, keep pressing on. Let me... Um, I'm going to head towards teams and then uh, get Craig to talk up, come and talk a little bit about teams as well. The, the, in all of this, if, if we're going to... If we're going to think bigger, and part of what I want to talk to us about is that towards the end is... is We've got to put to death a day of small church. We cannot keep thinking church is about 30, 40, 50, 100 people having scones on a Sunday afternoon in the car park just enjoying themselves. Churches that size have no cause. They exist for themselves and they don't go anywhere. <laughs> We've got to think bigger. If you are going to... If you're going to reach Canberra and get to 15, 20% of Canberra, you're going to have to have either, this is why I wanted the figures earlier, but three times as many churches as you have at present, at least, or three times as many people in each church just to get to 10 to 15%. You've got to think many times bigger. 
How are we going to get there? Well, the gospel. We've got to actually keep digging into the gospel because the gospel calls us to think bigger, um, which is where the 10% vision I found very helpful just to give some substance to that. But the gospel, get into the gospel because uh, it helps us think bigger. It's the key to reaching Australia when you get the gospel. When lives are transformed by grace alone, it's the key to getting the gospel. And it's the ability to create security where we as leaders can look hard at ourselves and not die by it. So when you get the gospel yourself, you have the security emotionally to be able to actually face the fact that you're not what you should be. Own the problems really and get the help you need. So the gospel's the key in all of this. Um, all right, here we go. I've got, I got four leadership principles uh, and we can dig into any one you want to pursue a little bit further. The first one is, in terms of leadership, we need to learn to lead ourselves. Um, now... Uh, who is not busy here already? There's been some research done in Sydney and uh, the burnout statistics, uh, if I remember correctly, it's 21% of ministers in Sydney who are not in burnout. Yeah, there's... <laughs> so the figures might be better here in Canberra. It, uh, it's something like... 35, 40% are in burnout and 35, whatever it is, are on the verge of. And you look at their diaries and you can understand it. And I dare say your diaries wouldn't be much different. Ministry has all kinds of demands. And so when you get someone talking to you about you've got to grow the church five times bigger, you kind of go, oh man, that's a lot more door knocking. <laughs> I haven't got time to do it. How am I going to... And so the key here is our personal management. And our personal management is about taking control, being proactive, not reactive, learning to say no. You are not the Messiah. And it's worth realising the Messiah even said no. Do you remember Mark chapter 1? All the sick were coming to him and the apostles were coming to him. All his key leaders were coming to him and saying, do this, do more. Uh, and he said, no, I'm going to go and preach the gospel elsewhere. That's why I've come. He said no to one need to reach another need. And it's actually just worth... Bear with me. I'm if, sorry if this is very basic stuff for you, but it's the yes-no principle you need to get a hold of. Every time you say yes to something, you are saying no to something else. Every time you say yes to something, you are saying no to something else. And when you own that, you're better able to assess your yeses properly. So if someone comes to me and says, can you meet with me on Wednesday from 9 to 11? And I say yes to that. I've said no to something else I could have spent 9 to 11 doing. You've got to get that in your heads. Um, when I say yes to answering the email, to getting involved with the pastoral problem, to running the ladies' auxiliary, I'm saying no to doing something else. Just got to own that. Um, and you've only got so many hours in your week, and how you use those hours will contribute to the outcome that your church has in reaching the world around us. How you use the fixed amount of time that you've got will contribute to how you reach the community around you. So you've got to learn to use those hours in the most strategic, effective way, which means you've got to learn to say no. <laughs> uh, you've got to learn to say no. Um, now... That, of course, begs the question, what is the most strategic way to use my time? Where should I be investing my time? And that's where we all need a lot of help. 
Uh, and I hope to get to there in a little bit. Not that we have all the answers, but we have been pursuing some of them. So we've got to first learn to lead, out, lead ourselves. So you've got to learn the disciplines of saying no, saying yes. Uh, you are the most important human resource the church has. And if you get stuffed up and choked up, and we're gone. When we went up the Central Coast, after a couple of years of being there, uh, one of the ministers nearby, a great reformed evangelical guy, said to me, uh, he said, I've got to tell you, you actually helped transform my ministry. Your presence and your drive to get ahead forced me to realise I can't waste my time having cups of tea with old ladies all the time. Because that's how he'd been spending his ministry, do you see? Um, a friend of mine was um, visiting a church in Sydney, that evil Sydney's place, so we can talk about it. we're all together on this one. Uh, he, he was visiting a minister in Sydney and he said, um, one of the guys on our ministry team, and he said, it was quite an eye-opener to the ministry life in other churches. He said, this guy's a minister and he was there for half a day and he said it was such a relaxed environment. He said he kind of, he wandered in, he wandered out, did a bit of a blog, wandered over and did a bit more reading, had a bit of a lunch. And he said... That's not, our life is running from this discipleship, that meeting, that Bible talk, that, <laughs> you know, he, he said, it was a very attractive life. Um, now, we're not advocating workaholism, because that won't further the cause of the gospel, but are you effective in what you're doing and how you're doing it? What's the most strategic things to be doing? So learn to watch your life and doctrine closely, persevere in them and get some tools to do that. Now, that's the platform for the next three things. Learn to lead yourself. Once, you, once you, you've got to keep lurking the disciplines of how I run my life, how I think about my life, what are the priorities for my life, what's the big strategic things I've got to invest in for my life, and be disciplined to keep them and keep the order and structures that you need to have. This, and learn to, learn to deal with the conflict that comes when you say no. So learn to be gracious. Learn to be tactful. Second thing, learn to lead others. Now, this is obvious, I guess, because it's, all, it's why we've all gone into the work, to pastor people, to lead people. But the, leader, uh, the lead, other thing, lead others thing is a skill. The lead others thing is a skill which we need to keep developing and growing in. Um, and I think there are two other, two leading others skills that are quite different that we need to develop. Um, the first one is to lead others spiritually, if you lead others spiritually, you're talking about leading others to get the gospel and grow spiritually. That's your preaching ministries, your discipling ministries, your gospel rub work, getting alongside someone. It's the, tre it's the vine work out of Trellis and Vine. If you've not read Trellis and Vine, it's a very good book, you would have read it. It's the leading others spiritually. That's critical. Churches will rise and fall in our ability to make a difference and change people's lives. Yeah? Um, and actually, just it's worth reflecting. How are you going on that? Do you have... Have you had any... Success in seeing people's growth spiritually happen through your ministries? Have you seen people change? And I don't mean say what a nice sermon. I mean my life has to go in different directions because of the ministries I'm experiencing. You having that happening? Because if that's not happening, it might be one of those Stockdale things to take a good hard look and see some skills that you need to pick up on. Um, and in a small church or a dead and dying church, the key here is you. You are going to have to do the work to get people into people's lives and be intentional. But there's another leading others skill that's critical, and it's leading others into ministry. 
And this is a different skill. It needs the first to fuel it, but this is where you begin to build multipliers. It's a different skill. Leading, spirit, leading people spiritually, preaching skills, relational skills, handling Bible well, insight skill, leading others into ministry, that's about recruiting people. It's about um, uh, inspiring and training and delegating. And by delegating, I mean delegating, not abdicating. And we are shooting ourselves seriously in the foot with delegation failures. Um, we give a ministry to someone and we either undermine it or we give up, we let them go and dump and run. We don't actually delegate properly. And so we breed badly underperforming congregations that never free you up. How many of you are still putting out the chairs in church, locking up, opening up, doing the admin facility stuff. How many of you are still doing it? Now, how big has a church got to be before you shouldn't have to do that anymore? Do you know what I mean? And if you can't lead people to at least do that kind of stuff, um, you need some help. You need to get someone to give you some help in how to do it. Um, we haven't set the context of people wanting to step up. And so my view is the platform ministries, the pulpit and so on, we set the context to change people spiritually so they said they need to step up into ministry and then we need to learn the skills to actually facilitate delegating and manage them in the ministry so they actually do the ministries and own the ministries and get good at the ministries better than we are so we can get on to other things. That's all skill stuff we need to pick up on. Um, Sometimes we haven't asked people to do ministry because we feel that they should be just volunteering. But how often have we had people just volunteer? <laughs> You've got to eyeball people and say, here's the gospel, here's life and death, here's heaven and hell, what are you doing with your life? Have you heard the American statistic of this? 10% they're saying in churches are doing ministry. 50% don't want to do ministries in a church. But 40% of a church want to do ministries, they just don't know how. Isn't that extraordinary? And I, th I found it to be fairly true in our context too. There's a group that have just got that, they do kind of respond fairly quickly. There's a group you'll never get. There's a massive group who would if they could and knew how, but they don't know and you've not helped them and so they just sit there. It's a skill. We keep rescuing people or going around people. We ask someone to organise a lunch. We're not sure they've done it, so we ring the place ourselves. Instead of, what should you do? You've asked someone to organise a lunch. You're not sure if they've done it. Instead of ringing the place to see if they've done it, what do you do? You ring them. And what do you do with them when you ring them? Well, you should have already had in place the thing that you'd expect them to do. You can go through that to train them in it and show that you actually expect them to have done it. And if they don't do it, it will fail. You're not going to do it. It's just all delegation. Um, now, I don't know whether you, you see yourself in any of this, but let me tell you, one of the problems is it's, it's managers, lead yourself, lead others requires not only different skills but a different set of values. You need to value 
seeing ministry done by others and not just seeing ministry done. That's a different value. And when you have that passionate value to see ministry done by others, you'll be prepared to give up the ministries to have others do it. And you won't see them doing it simply because they're helping you, but because they're participating in the cause of Christ. You see how that's working. Um, One way to skill up here is to take a ministry area, do the full recruitment process yourself, tasking someone, and talk through exactly with someone the vision that you have for the task, what part it plays in the whole ministry, the outcome you dream of for it, the measures by which they can tell it's working, and then set up coaching times. That's how you do it best. That's how you do it best. Um, And just a little thing, don't say thank you to people. I'm on a little crusade on this one. Stop thanking people for doing ministries. (laughs) Thank you. And never, never thank people for coming to church. (laughs) Oh, man. When you say thank you to someone for doing ministry, what are you saying to them? They're doing it to help you. Man, you you want them to do it to help. Well, not to help, out of honour and pleasure for Jesus. And so you're the captain of the football team who's just had someone score a try for you. Thanks for scoring the try. What are you talking about? I didn't score it for you. Do, do you know, it's just a bizarre thing. There's a million ways. Yeah, there's a million ways. So you are the captain of the football team where one of the blokes scores a try. What do you say? Well done. Fantastic. That was so encouraging for everyone. The way you stood up was awesome. Keep doing it. You know, I find it inspiring. I thank the football gods every time you do it. You know, I don't know what it is. But uh, just don't say thank you because it's just a bizarre thing. Now, um, we don't think it's bizarre because I think we have bought into some sense in which we're the leader and they're helping us do ministries. Oh, that's a danger. Now, there are some times where you should thank people because they're actually helping you. So if someone babysits your kids, say thank you. Um, lead others, lead yourself, lead others. I'll give you the third one, uh, lead leaders, and I'm going to get Craig up uh, and get him because I want to go lead leaders and lead strategy. We'll talk about strategy, the last one, but lead leaders, which is where you build teams. And I want to talk about teams very briefly and get Craig to give some input on this as well. Um, As someone who leads teams and is on a team, that's what you were thinking about talking about, wasn't it? See how delegated so well. It... um, this is where you crank up your ministry. So, so the first step is to learn to lead yourself. Second step is to learn to lead others in spiritually and doing the ministries. And the value there you need to embrace is the value of actually having ministries done by others. There's a third step, which is leading those who lead others. See the difference? Leading others who lead others. This is where you start to multiply. People who don't just do a task but who themselves become multipliers. See the difference? You're now inviting someone to become a multiplier with you and that's when exponential growth can happen. Um, 
It's the person, now it is the person you give any major responsibility to which requires more resources than just them doing it on their own. That's the person we're talking about. So um, uh, it's, um, it's the person you ask to lead the team of Sunday school teachers. Um, it's the person you ask to lead the ministry of following up new people in the church the person who themselves will have to get others to do that ministry. So you're now in a different ball game. Got it? You're not just asking someone to do a job, you're asking someone to be a leader of others. Now, the reason I'm, I'm labouring this is because um, we have traditionally left this kind of level of leadership to staff because we don't know how to do it well, I think. And so if we need someone to lead a team of people, we get someone employed to do it. We can't afford to do that. And we're failing to bring people as volunteers to be all that they could be under Christ. You need a different set of skills to pull this one off and you need to deal with different blockages personally to pull this one off. Because there's more at stake with these kind of leaders. There's more dangers uh, with this kind of leadership structure in your church. And the challenge will then become one for you as the leader of leaders who have team members to maintain a unified vision together. Now, this is the, this is the shift that's classically been called and I found most helpfully in my early years called the shift from shepherd to rancher. Has anyone... You've heard, who's heard shepherd to rancher? I'm sorry if I'm talking the same stuff, but... The shepherd is the guy who looks after 20 sheep. The rancher is the guy who looks after 20 shepherds who have each got 20 sheep. Got it? Now, there's a value shift from being a shepherd to a rancher and a personal shift which brings grief and challenges. And at this stage, you've got a shift from loving to do the ministry yourself through to loving to seeing ministry done by others, through to loving to multiply the ministries that others are now doing. That's hard because we're all trained to be shepherds, to care for the sheep. And when they're in need, we answer, we help them, we walk with them, we lead them. But you will hit the ceiling of influence, you won't better grow your ministry beyond 100 people. The rancher... His priority was to ensure that the sheep are cared for and he takes responsibility that they are cared for rather than being the one who cares for them. That personally is very difficult for most of us if you've got a heart. It's hard because it feels impersonal and corporate and people don't want us to do it. They want to be with the minister. They want to be able to call the head guy with their problem which taps into our need to be needed, <laughs> to be valued. I set a person up many years ago to do the connecting work and um, Craig will remember this guy, he was very good at it and, um, and, and you know, I'd poured a lot of energy into getting the money for him and carving out a work and getting him going um, and I had a number of people come to me over various times and say this, they said, um, he is very good. He really cares for us. When we're in need, he's always there. What's the message? 
he's the one who loves, you don't. And for the first couple of times people did that, I, I, I bristled and I said, you do realise it was my care for you that meant I found the money to get that guy to do what he's doing because I couldn't do what you needed to have done. I cared for you that much. And I did that little speech. But after a few years, I just stopped. <laughs> he's a great guy. So glad he's better than I could ever be. So, uh, but that's hard, yeah? And um, I'm interested... Uh, um, do you want to come up now, Craig? Because I'm keen to get your thoughts just on a couple of things now. Um, Just remembering this, every time you say yes, you're saying no. Every time you say, every time you say yes to filling up your diary such that you're busy here, you are saying no to spending time in building up leaders of leaders. So you've got to say no to some things to give time, to find the time to build up leaders of leaders. Now, um, you've gone through transitions in leadership over the last 14 years. Um, can you reflect on? I know you haven't. I don't think you prepared this, but can you reflect on the transitions you've gone through from being the guy who kind of ran all the growth groups uh, to the guy who had to step back from that and then set up other staff around you and so on? Yeah, what's been your? I remember it intimately, so I don't need to prepare it. <laughs> but, um, but to give you a bit of background, um, uh, my route to full-time ministry has been unusual. It hasn't been the typical one. I didn't. I didn't pursue ordained ministry at Moore College, and I did that. There were various reasons in my background that led me that way. Part of it was my navigator's background, as a matter of fact. But my modelling ministry was Andrew. Um, and he was... We'd known each other since we were, you heard, pretty young. He was a pretty laissez-faire kind of guy. And I picked up lots from that. And so our early experience of ministry was meetings were kind of laissez-faire. We, we arrived around about the time we needed to be there. And, um, and we got into work eventually, and it was pretty laid back. Uh, um, for the early part of the time I was at, at, um, at EV, I really did feel I was, down in the, I was down in the mine doing lots of work. So I was writing the Bible-reading material. I was recruiting and finding the Bible study leaders. Uh, I was writing the Bible studies they would lead or helping them to learn how to lead it. I was discipling those guys. I was working out the material in evangelism that we didn't have and writing it. I was writing the talks that needed to be given. I was writing the training material that needed to be given. So I was doing lots of that. I was doing lots of the, um, the operational work. But I, and I was discipling people, but I wasn't... There's a whole level of ministry that I actually hadn't... I really hadn't got into. And in fact, my experience of working at that level meant I, though I was... Though I actually had been... Um, in my prior life, highly organised, um, managerially, I'd trained myself out of that, so I wasn't particularly organised. So I've had to... Um, this is what you're asking? I've really had to, I've had to reinvent myself, I think, as we've had to reinvent ourselves as a team. Um, we had a flat level of... Lead, a flat kind of structural, um, for our structural level of leadership. There was no hierarchy in it. Um, there were some teams. There was a bunch of growth group leaders who I'd recruited and trained. I had attempted to set up an intermediate level of leadership, but I hadn't gotten far with that. And I actually wasn't particularly good at doing it anymore, um, if I ever was good at doing it. There's a, there's a starting point. So, so tell me about why we moved from laissez-faire. 
Well, the rea- I think the reality is, and I'm be interested in your perspective on it, but um, team ministry can't be laissez-faire. It just cannot be because you are working with so many people whom you need to mesh with, whom for whom what you do is important. Um, that is, what I do is going to matter to them. What they do is going to matter to me. There's an interrelatedness about that, which means you just can't arrive at meetings late. So I've now got a, I've got a small team of, say, four guys that work with me on mission. Some are volunteers. One is paid. But we can't arrive at meetings late. We just waste time. And so I've got to say, I need you there at such and such a time, and, at that, and past that time you can go, and Adrian and I will carry on together, but we need you there on time. So there are some things like that that um, I think Andrew mentioned, personal management just became critical. Um, and, I, and I saw Andrew, I mean, he perhaps won't say this, and I think my reading of it's accurate. Um, he was by nature a laissez-faire guy. We lived together for a period of time, which was, which was almost more than either of us could take. Um, but, um, and it was a great experience. But uh, it was fantastic. Um, but um, but he, I've seen him reinvent himself and it's been passion and conviction driven by the gospel that I think has caused him to do it. Actually, to take on attributes that I don't think have been his natural. And I think the reality is in team ministry you have to do that irrespective of whether you think this is my natural, this is my typical bent, you just can't do that. Yeah. You, you, you cannot go past the flat, I work with a few people and we're all friends together and it's this kind of family thing. You won't get past that unless you, you become sharper, tighter, clearer, more managerial. Um, you've got to move from family to organisation and keep the family values but with organisation that's tight and clear. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So and especially as you go deeper, as you get... Um, so now we, we both, me particularly... I mean, I lead four or five layers down and, and you just... You, you can't operate laissez-faire anymore like that, by any means, yeah. And I remember when it began to happen. I remember I observed it happening. It was like there's this, there's this Simpsons skit, kind of an episode from one of the Simpsons shows where... Um, Bart demonstrates that he is smarter than a hamster. <laughs> you know how they, you know those hamsters, they touch the, they get the electric shock and they stop doing something. But Bart would go, oh, oh, <laughs> continually. Like you get what I'm saying there. Um, but I remember when Andrew began to change as a. As You're a, all nervous uh, about where this is going to. Yeah. I, I remember we'd we'd arrived at staff meetings late, and Andrew began to insist that we arrived on time. And then you began to be in strife if you didn't arrive on time. And it was consistent. It was, and it was like, oh, oh. <laughs> but you learned, you know. And, uh, and I realised something had shifted and the whole way we were operating and, and just needed to. Yeah, yeah. I'd bought into the model of ministry which was, um, it's relational. And so because it's relational... You know, the meeting's at four. This is what staff I used to be on. The meeting's at four, but it's relational. So you get there around five past ten past four and you relate together and then you drift into your meeting. But it's relational. And as I worked it out as the years went on with EV, it, it, it was killing us. It meant people were wasting time, inefficient. We had all this money locked up in this resource that God had given us and we weren't using it as effectively as we should. And it was breeding a culture that was inefficient and ineffective. Oh, it's just dreadful. So we shot it and, yeah, it was a very painful process, but we got there, yeah. Yeah. Um, in terms of 
what have been the challenges for you as you've sought to shift from shepherd to rancher? So you've mentioned, I think, some of them, but um, have you got any other things that have helped you be able to do that? Um, you've, you've sensed the challenge in yourself. Is yeah. That, yeah, 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 I have. Yeah, I've, I've had to reinvent. I've had to go back to something that had once upon a time been more natural to me. Uh, that is, just in terms of personal attributes. Um, uh, but uh, some of it's an extension of what I'd been doing, so that I'd been discipling since the time I was there, uh, and I've always discipled, but there was a need to look for people who were high-level, capable people. Some of those actually have been people who I discipled years ago. I discipled them when they first arrived, you know, 13, 14 years ago when we were on the Central Coast, and they had they'd grown deeply... But that discipling indicated attributes in them which meant they could accept higher levels of leadership. And that wasn't an easy thing. It's, it's not an easy transition for anyone to make. That is, I noticed it first, most immediately when we had a whole bunch of... We, we probably had 50 Bible study groups by the time I stopped leading the maturing ministries at church. But among those, there weren't people who thought of themselves as... Leaders who were there weren't many people who thought of themselves as leaders who could lead other leaders. I, I'd recruited about three, and they've stuck with me and followed me as I've moved from maturing ministry to evangelism, um, and and adopted that. But to actually to actually raise up more of those people required a whole process by which I needed to envision them for the necessity of the work. They simply didn't see it. So many of them said, "Oh, look, I'm just happy being a Bible study leader. That's what I think I do the best." and didn't actually see a need to care for many leaders, didn't have any concept of how that might ever work. And I realised as I began to try to recruit some of those guys, I needed to help, I needed to help them see the practical necessity of that level of leadership. That was a key thing. Yeah, that's helpful. And, and how that necessity plays into reaching the Central Coast and beyond. And so if we're going to reach the Central Coast, well, we've got to multiply this thing we can't do it with you just doing this. You need to step up, otherwise we're stuffed. And, and in part that's because people have in their minds, from whatever background they've come from, a particular perception of what is possible. Yeah. I've been in a church before and it was this big and so what is possible is, yeah, we've got a bunch of Bible study leaders. But they're not thinking of anything particularly bigger than that and they're not thinking of reaching the central coast. And as much as we say it, the congregation have needed over the years continual... Um, reminding at key levels, and perhaps you can speak to this, Andrew, they need to keep being reminded um, this is not sufficient, this is not even very big, this is not even what we're searching for. Mm. Now, you've done that at numbers of times. Constantly, everywhere. Yeah, 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 constantly. And I'm amazed how many people... I'm amazed how many people keep coming and saying, oh, it was good to hear it again. You've been here for 10 years, been hearing this every... Oh, it's good to hear it again. Because people... Vision leaks, that kind of thing, yeah. And so there's a, perhaps an expression to pick up on as well. That vision leaks means that now that as you're leading a team of volunteers, you, you can't assume that they understand the bigger picture of what's going on. You can't, you've got to continually remind them through the scriptures. Every time you meet together, what's the bigger picture of what we're on about? Not the small thing about where car parking crew who is setting up for whatever it might be, what's the bigger vision behind the car parking crew? What's the bigger vision behind the team that are making lunches for... 
to, so to keep sketching out and leading from, from the Bible, the gospel picture of what's going on has been critical to begin to lead teams that own the work for themselves. For, for every area of work, yeah. 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 It's good. I'm going to move on to leading strategy and then throw back to Craig for team. But do you want to ask anything else about that? 